At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hi, Nick. Hi, Hannah. Hey, Felix. Hello, Felix. Listeners, if you don't know who this is, this is Felix Poon. Felix has been an intern with Civics for the last summer and has been a delight to work with. Oh, and we're very you, glad Nick. you're here today, Felix. Yeah, and Felix, you are going to guest host today, right? I am, because I've got a story for you. Ooh. And this story starts in 1895. A man named Wong Kim Ark is on a steamship returning to his hometown of San Francisco, the city where he was born. And when he lands, a customs agent says he can't enter the United States. He says, you're Chinese, and there's a Chinese exclusion law, so you can't come in. But you said it was his hometown of San Francisco, right? So are you saying that someone yeah. born on U.S. soil was not allowed back into the country? That's right. That's what I'm saying. And he wasn't the only one. This was actually pretty common at that time. Customs agents tried to keep as many Chinese Americans out as they could. But some Chinese Americans sued the U.S. government to be granted entry. Wang Kimark sued and his case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And it's his case that solidifies birthright citizenship. Nowadays, pretty much everybody knows about birthright citizenship, which is anybody born in this country is a US citizen, and that's the law. But not many people have ever heard of Wong Kim Ark and the landmark Supreme Court decision that decided his fate and the fate of US immigration policy that endures to this day. And that, my friends, is the story I'm going to tell you about today. I'm Felix Poon, and this is Civics 101, the podcast refresher course on the basics of how our democracy works. Today, the story of Wang Kimart, the man, the landmark Supreme Court case, and the legacy of birthright citizenship. Before I tell you about Wang Kimart, I need to tell you about the America that he was born into. Chinese immigrants began arriving in significant numbers in the 1850s. Many came for the gold rush in California, and when the gold rush ended, they found jobs as railroad workers, miners, farmhands, laundry owners, and domestics. But hostility towards them had been growing. In San Francisco, you have a, a labor organizer, Dennis Kearney, who was agitating that the Chinese were taking white jobs, and, and running a Chinese must-go campaign. This is Carol Nakanoff, professor of political science at Swarthmore College and co-author of the forthcoming book, American by Birth, Wong Kim Ark and the Battle for Citizenship. In July of uh, 1877, a mob formed and destroyed $100,000 in Chinese-owned property, burning laundries and leaving four dead. That's millions of dollars of damage in today's money. That's a lot. But more importantly, that's lost life and a lost sense of safety and belonging. And this racially motivated violence happened not just in San Francisco, but all along the West Coast, including Seattle, Tacoma, and Los Angeles, where more than half the victims were publicly lynched. That's horrifying. And I feel like this is a, a moment in American history that we really don't hear about. At least I didn't learn about it in school. Did you, Nick? No, not at all. 
Yeah, I didn't even learn about it until college. And I was kind of shocked to hear about it, especially that, like, I'd never learned about it before. And this is when Congress began excluding Chinese immigrants. They passed the country's first immigration act, the Page Act, in 1875, barring Chinese women from entering the country. And then in 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act barred all Chinese people from entering the country. So that's the hostile environment that Wang Kimark was born into around 1871 in San Francisco. He grew up in Chinatown. He was five foot seven tall. His father was Wang Zeping, and his mother was Lei Mei. His parents came to the U.S. from Toisan, China. So public record listed them as merchants, but like, what does that actually mean? It, they ran a store. That's considered a merchant, which was uh, in the city directory listed uh, in 1879 and 1880 as a butcher and provisioner. Wang Kimark didn't have much formal education. From age 11, he was listed as a cook. And that's about all we know about his life in the U.S. There are records of four trips he took to China. The first was in 1889 with his parents. He gets married on this trip to a woman named Yi Shi from his ancestral town of Toisan. His second trip is in 1894 to 1895 to visit his wife and family. And it's coming back to San Francisco on this second trip that the customs agent says he can't enter the United States. And so he was detained. And he said, hey, I was born here. I'm a citizen. You have to let me in. This is Bethany Berger, professor of law at the University of Connecticut. Not only did he say that, he had, he had papers with him to prove that. And the customs officer says, I don't care. Um, Chinese cannot become citizens by being born in the United States. One of those papers is a notarized letter. We, the undersigned, do hereby certify that the said Wong Kim Ark is well known to us. A witness statement. Anybody else traveling, a white American traveling abroad, didn't have to have anything in the way of documents. This is Carol Nakanoff again. And so the Chinese had a far more rigorous documentation uh, uh, regime than anybody else. They had to have witnesses that attested to you know, where they lived and that they knew them. These witnesses couldn't be Chinese. They had to be white. Wait, was that written in, was that, was that a stipulation of it? Like they had to be white? I don't think they said it was like a written requirement, like you must make sure you get a white person. It was just kind of like an unspoken rule that they wouldn't trust Chinese people. Right. And so it was just kind of like they can't be Chinese. In practice, it was find a white person. Right. And they would go through an interview, get this certificate that allowed them to return, go and return. And it was a single use document. Even with this documentation in hand, the customs agent denies Wong Kimark entry. And so basically, he has nowhere to go. So he gets back on the boat. Seriously? Do you have to go back to China? We'll get to that part. But first, I have to tell you about those who came before him and what happened to them. There are a lot of Chinese men traveling back and forth to visit family in China at this time. And many are getting denied re-entry to the United States. Some of them just give up and make the trip back to China. A trip that takes 33 days, according to an old newspaper clipping. But others fought their detentions in court with the help of the six companies. Wait, the six companies, what's that? Well, companies is probably a misnomer. Um, there were really six prominent Chinese associations in San Francisco, and they came together as one. 
um, to provide social support, but also to provide legal support to Chinese Americans. Here's Bethany Berger again. In the first years of the exclusion laws, they brought 7,000 cases um, challenging Chinese exclusion. And they were so successful in doing this uh, that Congress and the customs officials kept trying to amend the laws to make it harder for them to win these cases. That's actually very cool. So the six companies are there for Wong Kim Ark. They file for habeas corpus. Habeas corpus, that little Latin phrase that means bring the unlawfully detained person before the court. Yep, that's it. It's a right to a trial. Meanwhile, Wong Kim Ark is still off the coast of San Francisco on a ship. And that ship is about to sail back to China. So he's put onto another ship. And then that ship wants to go back. And he's put onto another ship. And so this is a period of months in which he's confined, looking over at his hometown, but unable to set foot there. So is he granted habeas? They do grant him habeas. Um, but what's interesting here is that the judge actually agrees in principle with the U.S. government that Wong Kim Ark is not a citizen. But he says he has to go by legal precedent that was set by earlier court cases. And so he rules that Wong Kim Ark is a U.S. citizen because of the citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment. So this judge makes explicitly clear that he has a racist idea here and that he is only making this decision based on precedence. He basically says, this is against my better judgment, but I'm going to do this anyway. And so just as a reminder, that citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment says, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. So, Felix, Wong Kim Ark won. Yeah, he won. Woo. I mean, he was still unlawfully detained on three different boats for five months, but <laughs> at least he won his court case. So is that it, Felix? Like, is this happily ever after for Wong Kim Ark? Um, no. Not quite. Uh, the government immediately appeals. So they take it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. This is Julie Novkov. She's a professor of political science at the University at Albany and co-author with Carol on their book, American by Birth, Wong Kim Ark and the Battle for Citizenship. The majority opinion is written by Justice Horace Gray. And his response is that if people are in the United States and they're following the laws of the United States, and uh, basically they're not in some sort of special category like that of a diplomat. Um, they are living under the sovereignty of the United States, and therefore children who are born to them in the United States are born under that sovereign power. And therefore, according to common law principles, going back to um, England, uh, they are entitled to citizenship on the basis of the 14th Amendment. In writing the majority opinion, Justice Gray did reaffirm that there are exceptions to the citizenship clause. Diplomats are not subject to the jurisdiction of the U.S. If they commit a crime, they don't face the justice system the same way that we do. So their children that are born here, not U.S. citizens. Children born here of a foreign occupying force, 
hasn't happened yet, knock on wood, but if it did happen, not U.S. citizens. So what the majority opinion boils down to is that Wong Kim Ark does not fall into any of these exempt categories, so he is indeed a U.S. citizen. But hold on, if this case was decided the other way, wouldn't you then have to revoke the citizenship of millions of children born to European immigrants? I mean, basically, and Justice Gray wrote this in his opinion, that to deny Wong Kim Ark his citizenship would be to, quote, deny citizenship to thousands of persons of English, Scotch, Irish, German, or other European parentage who have always been considered and treated as citizens of the United States. This ruling is a big deal. It solidifies a path to citizenship for all immigrants that is based on the 14th Amendment. But then there were some unintended consequences in the aftermath of the ruling. Like what? So there's this phenomenon of paper sons. Paper sons actually know about these. Do you, Hannah? I don't. I would imagine it's someone claiming someone as their their son or, right. or daughter, but it would be son in this case. So since the only way you could be a legal Chinese immigrant to the United States was if you were a family member of somebody who had been born here, a child of somebody who had been born here. So you have all these people claiming. Right. So all new <laughs> Chinese immigrants to the U.S. are claiming that they are the children of people already here on paper, therefore paper sons. Some of these paper sons were maybe not necessarily the sons of citizens, but they were close relatives. Maybe they were brothers, maybe they were nephews. But because there's an awareness among immigration officials that that this is happening, uh, they become far, far more suspicious. What evolves out of this is that you, you wind up with kind of a cat and mouse game between Chinese who are trying to get into the United States and immigration officials who are trying to keep as many out as possible. And exclusion laws only get worse. By the time we get to 1924, legislation is basically excluding almost all Asian immigration and denying uh, immigrants from Asia any possibility of gaining citizenship. Um, This actually goes as far in the 1920s as denying citizenship to, uh, uh, to, to Japanese who had served in World War I. We have called the Congress here this afternoon not only to mark a very historic occasion, but to settle a very old issue that is in dispute. It's not until the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 that immigration bans and quotas are completely lifted. With my signature, this system is abolished. And finally, you have greater numbers of Asians immigrating to the U.S. will never again shatter the gate to the American nation. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
Soon after that, public scrutiny over immigration shifts, and beginning around the 1980s, you have some people using the term birthright citizenship pejoratively against the children of undocumented Mexican Americans. They call for doing away with birthright citizenship. Immigration. President Trump is setting to challenge a 150-year-old constitutional standard that anyone born in America is an American citizen. The president but the president the can't just unilaterally do away with something that was decided in the Supreme Court, right? I mean, the Wonka Mark ruling means that they can't just get rid of birthright citizenship. Well, some would argue that the Wonka Mark ruling doesn't apply here because Wankimark's parents were here legally, while undocumented immigrants are here illegally. So uh, what did the people you talked to think about that? They don't think this argument would be very convincing in court. Um, basically, they say that there was no distinction back then between documented and undocumented. If you made it to US shores, you were a citizen. But given the exclusion laws, it was clear the government wanted to exclude Chinese people from this country. So they're in consensus that the Wong Kim Ark ruling does apply. And therefore, the only way to do away with birthright citizenship is to amend the Constitution, which, by the way, is not an easy process. It would need to pass through both the House and the Senate with two-thirds majorities, and then it needs to be approved by three-quarters of state legislatures. So birthright citizenship is probably here to stay, and our guests all agree that's a good thing. Here's Julie Novkov. Well, I think birthright citizenship is important simply because it provides an additional layer of protection for some of the most vulnerable residents of our country. And it also, I think, telegraphs a message of equality, of, of being born an American regardless of where you're coming from or what your situation is. There's a kind of moral valence to birthright citizenship that is entangled in a productive and good way with American ideals. Felix, I'm so curious, what happened in the end to Wong Kim Ark? While we don't really know much beyond his third and fourth trips to China to visit his family. Remember, his wife was back in China, and that fourth trip in 1931 was Wang Kimark's last. He didn't come back to the U.S., and we know that he died sometime in the 1940s. So do you know if like, he died without ever knowing what his legacy was? That's a really good question, Nick. And I think the best person to answer that is Erica Lee. She's a professor of American history at the University of Minnesota. She said the reason why he wouldn't have known is because of his lived experience. Remember those notarized witness statements Wong Kim Ark had to get? Erica went to see the originals at the National Archives at San Francisco, and she saw that by his third and fourth trips to China, the U.S. government standardized them into a templated form. It was called Application of Alleged American Citizen of the Chinese Race, for pre-investigation of status. This is a government form. That means that someone typeset it, someone put it through the printer, someone ordered thousands of copies to be printed and then sent to immigration offices around the country. Having that, that term, alleged citizen, shows just how deeply rooted and institutionalized uh, this racism was. So, so no matter if you won the Supreme Court case, 
uh, on a daily basis, you're still going to be suspect. I also remember, you know, flipping through the file and wondering, where's the copy of the Supreme Court case? Like, shouldn't this be like in Monopoly? Shouldn't this be your get out of jail free card? Like, shouldn't he have just like gotten walked off the ship? Hey, yeah. it's Wonka Mark, you know, come <laughs> on in. That didn't happen. Felix, this is something that we encounter a lot when it comes to people who win their Supreme Court cases in the names of civil rights. And that's that it just takes so long for whatever it is they've won to be implemented across the United States, right? That that, that person, uh, ostensibly the beneficiary, isn't practically the beneficiary. They don't get to reap the reward of that decision. And it sounds like that's how it went down for Wong Kim Ark, right? Oh, definitely. But there is one last thing to this story. What this landmark ruling does do for Wong Kim Ark is that it allows his sons to immigrate to the U.S. and become naturalized citizens. So guess what? Wong Kim Ark has descendants here in the U.S. And I just think that's amazing because the U.S. government tried so hard to prevent Chinese immigrants from establishing families here. But here they are, the family of Wong Kim Ark. Felix, does this end up being this proud family story that gets passed down? Actually, no. Erica says nobody in the family really knew about it until 1998. There was a 100-year anniversary celebration in San Francisco, and Wong Kim Ark's youngest son just happened to see it reported in the Chinese-language newspaper. And this is where, for the first time, those of us who had researched Wong Kim Ark realized that his son was still living in San Francisco and that when the reporter interviewed him, he expressed a great deal of surprise that he had never heard his father talk about his struggle. He had no recollection that this Supreme Court case and the right of birthright citizenship was based on his father's efforts. And it was just such a, I think, tragedy of how we choose which stories, which struggles get remembered and which ones we allow to get forgotten. It was a double tragedy, you know, not just for the Wong family, but for all of us who care about our, our country. One would think that when you win a Supreme Court case, and that it establishes such a broad base of citizenship rights, um, the right of birthright citizenship, that your name would be well-known, celebrated, that there would be streets named after you, that there would be a, um, a statue, that there would be uh, a way that every school child would know who this person was and the importance of his struggle for equality. I just want to say I think it's interesting that the three of us are talking about learning or not learning about this in school. because. We've been talking a lot about exclusion and the idea of like the Chinese Exclusion Act, but exclusion doesn't end in 1965. Mm. There's still this exclusion of what stories we tell 
and don't tell. I feel like after today, I have a much clearer sense of this time in American history. So thanks for sharing, Felix. Yeah, thank you for having me host today. It's been an honor to be able to tell you this story. Today's episode was produced by me, Felix Poon, along with Hannah McCarthy, Nick Capodice, and Jackie Fulton. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Special thanks to Bill Hing and Taylor Quimby. Music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions, Sarah the Instrumentalist, Loboloco, and The Tower of Light. You can listen to more Civics 101 at civics101podcast.org. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. It's a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.